Apple message boards. And then I just looked at the thousands of posts per day of people just wanting to talk to other people about Apple products, about their product, about the product that's coming out later. There's this whole community that Apple has formed around people who just want to talk about the things that Apple is doing. So there is a personal implication. There's a relational implication. And then finally, there's a global implication for Apple. That that store opened in Barcelona, Spain. Apple, a a, a company that started in California now, reaches all the way into Barcelona, Spain, and several other countries. If you've looked, if you've kept up with the news, if you keep up with the stock market, Apple stock is way up this week with the release of the iPhone 5. So there's this economic part of it that's very, that's very cool. There's a social part of it. Um, they're projecting that by 2015, Apple will have over 1 billion iDevices in the hands of people. That's incredible. 1 billion in, in the hands of people. So there's this big social aspect to it. And then, and then there's just a real technological advance to it. Everything that they do is on the cutting edge of the technology. So you see what Apple has tapped into is they recognize that if they can make it, if they can make something personally appealing to you, it's going to impact you on a personal level, a relational level, and then it's going to spread to become a global level. So that's the, that's what we kind of want to look at this morning is this idea that when something dramatically affects you and changes you personally, you're going to talk about it. You're going you're gonna to want to be with people who want to talk about it. You're going to want to share it. If you had an iPhone 5 right now, Joel was showing his off this morning. Like if you had one, like you're going to want people to know what you have. And when enough people talk about one thing, it becomes a global phenomenon. Um, we talk a lot about the gospel around here. And, and, and I, so before I get started this morning, I, I want to just dig into a little bit about what that word actually means. Because one of the things that I'm afraid of, when we say things around the church at Cane Bay, like our church is built on the gospel. If you hear last week, Charlie said that, that our church is built on the gospel. And one of the things that I want to be real careful of is that we um, don't ever want the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be lost by our categorizing the word gospel as simply another church word. Okay, so, so what is the gospel? Um, that question has, books have been written about that question. Lectures have been given about that question. Um, doctoral theses have been written about this question. What is the gospel? And to put it very simply, the word gospel, does anybody know what it means? By the, the gospel, what does it mean? Just means good news. It, the word simply means good news. Now that's kind of funny because good news without bad news is just what? It's just news. So if the gospel is the good news, we've got to figure out what the bad news is. So what's the bad news? If you look into the scriptures, back as far as into Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, we read that God is holy. And he is a holy God, and he has created us to be a holy people. Now, holy simply means without blemish. So it basically means that God is both morally and intrinsically pure, which means not only is he right and just in everything that he does, but he's right and just in everything that he is. God is the holiest, purest being in all of history. There is no fault in him. There is no imperfection in him. And in Genesis chapter one, it says that he created us. He created Adam and Eve, our first um, man and first woman. He created us in his image to be like him. But it says that God also created man with a will of his 
own. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see that Adam uses his own will to sin and he deviates from the holiness of God. So when Adam sins, he breaks God's good creation. What God created for us to be a holy people in a perfect relationship with our creator God is broken when sin enters into the picture in Genesis chapter 3. Because God is holy, because he is morally and intrinsically pure, he can have no part of sin. So when man becomes sinners, they separate themselves from God. And not only that, but now that we are separated from him, we are now rightly deserving of his just punishment against our sin. Romans will tell us, the book of Romans, Paul tells us in the book of Romans that um, when Adam sinned, he passed that sin down to everyone who would come after. And you and I have inherited that sin nature. Now, if you read in Genesis 3, this, this stumped me for a long time. If you read in Genesis 3, what happens? God says, here's all of creation. I want you to steward it. It's yours. I've given it to you for my glory and for your joy. And the only thing that I don't want you to do is there's a tree in the middle of the garden, and I don't want you to eat of this tree. That, that's the only rule that God puts down. It's the only law that God says, I, just, I don't want you to eat of this tree. And what happens? Adam, Eve eats of the tree and gives some to her husband, Adam. This stumped me for a long time because I thought, Okay, God, I can think of a laundry list of things that I've done today that were a lot worse than eating fruit from some tree. Like, like why was that such a big deal? Why is Adam's eating of the fruit such a big deal? Isn't that like, isn't that, how is that even considered a sin? And it wasn't until a couple years ago that I started to realize this, and I had some guys speak this into my life, that the severity of the punishment, okay, So it says that Adam ate the fruit and he separated himself from God. He was expelled from the garden and now he is rightly under God's punishment for that. The severity of the punishment isn't judged by the action. It's not judged by Adam eating the fruit, but it's judged by the one who is sinned against. So let me break it down to you this way. Okay. Um, If I get angry today and I go out and I throw a rock at another rock, there's no consequence for that, right? If I throw a rock at another rock in my anger, there's no consequence for that. Now, if I go home and I, in my anger, I throw a rock at my wife, there's an issue there, right? I don't know how it works in your family, but in my house, like that's, it's not going to fly. Okay. So, so if I go home and, and in my anger, throw a rock at my wife, there's, there's a more of a problem there, right? Now let's say in my anger, I go to the white house and I throw a rock at the president of the United States. There's a much larger form of consequence there. Why? What's happened? The action hasn't changed. I'm still throwing rocks, but what have I done? I'm throwing rocks at a rock, at my wife, at the president. So as you can see, the sin is not judged by the action. It's judged by the one who is sinned against. So what happens in the garden when Adam eats the fruit, what he has done is he has thrown a rock and shook his fist at the infinite almighty creator God of the universe, and he is now rightly under God's wrath. And you and I enter into this world shaking our fist and throwing rocks at the creator of the universe. And we should be rightly and justly punished. It took me a while to figure this out that some people come back to this and they go, you know, I don't like that picture of God. The God that I like is this God who's, who's just kind of this loving God. And, and Jesus is just kind of this loving character who just kind of floats around. And he's always got the lamb, 
You know, he's always got a lamb that he's petting and a sash and feathered hair and he's passing out suckers. Like that's the Jesus that I, that I like, this, this Jesus of love. But, but here's the problem. God is love. God cannot be a God of love if he is not also a God of justice. So, so here's my example, okay? Let's say uh, tonight you go home and while on the news, um, there's a guy who's, who's been caught for murder. And let's say it's something horrific and tragic. Let's say somebody's, he's, he's murdered a child, okay? And, and, and they, they go through it. They find out that he's confessed to it. He's, um, he's, he's ab- absolutely guilty. People saw him do it. Like there's no doubt about his guilt. And they bring this guy before a judge. And they say this, here's the guy. He is guilty. And he's standing before the judge. And the judge looks at him and says, you know what? You can go. Get out of here. See you later. How do we respond to that? Everybody in the world would freak out. And we'd say, who is this judge? What, what, he just let a murderer walk free. We wouldn't say that that's a loving act. We would say he's unjust. Why? Because love and justice are always intertwined. Love and justice are intertwined. And in much the same way, you and I stand before a holy, righteous, pure God with all of our sin, and we are guilty, and we deserve to, in love and justice, be punished. Now, in the Old Testament, God sets this forth and people try to figure out how in the world they're going to, how in the world they're going to get rid of this guilt. How in the, how are we going to, how are we going to get rid of our sin? And in, in the Old Testament, God sends the law and the people thought that if we can just obey the law, if I can just do all the things that God has said to do, then I'll be saved. But that wasn't the point of the law. The law wasn't given so that people could keep all of the law and be saved. It was given to show us that there's no way that we could keep the law. Okay, so so let's let's do a, just a quick survey in this room, just just real quick. Okay, um, let's not go Levitical law. Okay, let's not look at like the all eight hundred, like don't wear two clothing with you know different pa- like let's not go like that way. Okay, let's just go very simple. Let's just go junior varsity elementary school law. Okay, let's go Ten Commandments. All right. So we're trying right now, we're trying to do our best, we're trying to have our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, and and as long as that happens, God will be all right with us. Let's just go Ten Commandments, all right? How many of you have broken one of the Ten Commandments in your life? Okay, some of you? Okay, all right, awesome. How many of you have broken one of the Ten Commandments this week? Okay, this week, all right, yeah, a little bit. How many of you broke one of the Ten Commandments on your way into church this morning? Uh, Like, you know, like your kid's screaming in the bag, and you're like, I'll give you something to scream about. And you you walk in the door, it's like, hi, I'm just so blessed. You know, it's like, how how does that work? how does this work, you know? So, so we, we can't even do the, the Ten Commandments. There's just ten of them. And you're like, yeah, but maybe I lied once, but I haven't killed anybody. I, I, I've been faithful to my wife. But then Jesus comes along and he blows that up and he goes, if you've looked at somebody with hate in your heart, you might as well have murdered them. If you've looked at a woman or another man that's not your wife or your husband lustfully, you've committed adultery with her. So all of a sudden we start to recognize that the law just continues to crush and crush and crush and crush because the law wasn't meant for us to live by it so that we could be saved. But all the law does is say, there's no way that I can keep this. There's no way that I can do this. And when we recognize that there's no way that we can keep God's law, and here's this creator, holy, infinitely pure God, and he is our righteous judge, and we stand before him, we go, I got nothing. What am I going to give you? Money? My life? What am I, I going to give you that, that's going to wash away this sin? And we recognize that we are 
totally helpless and 100% ready to be punished and separated from God, not just in this life, but eternity. So that's the bad news, okay? Promise it's going to go up from here. I know I just bummed everybody out. That's the bad news we talked about. But remember what we said, the gospel is the good news. And good news without bad news is just news. So what's the good news? What is the gospel? It's the good news that even though we can't earn God's favor or avoid his wrath through our own works, we don't have to. Why? Because God himself, God himself, our righteous judge, has provided the righteousness that we need to be reconciled. You know what it means to be reconciled? It means to be brought back into original standing, that we can be brought back into that fellowship with God that existed at the beginning. It says that we can be reconciled to him and that we can be given a life that far exceeds this mere 70 or 80 or 90 years we spend on this earth. We can be given a life that lasts for eternity. It says that God himself has provided this. Remember the the example I gave you about the judge. Here's what happens. You and I are that murder. We are guilty. We have witnesses against the Satan, it says, as our accuser. He says he is guilty. And the judge doesn't just let us go. Do you know that? God doesn't look at your sin and just say, you know what? I I forgive it. You can go. You You know what God does? He, as the judge, steps down and into our place and takes our punishment for us. God says, somebody's got to be punished for this. And I'm going to take the punishment on myself so that you can go free. And how does God do that? He does that through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That when Jesus, born of a virgin, comes into the world, he lives the life that you and I could not live. And he died the death on a brutal, bloody Roman execution stake that you and I should have died for our sin. And then three days later, he was risen. And he was seen by the apostles and 500 witnesses. And he ascended to the Father where today he stands ready to offer salvation to you. If you will simply call on him. If you will simply say, God, I don't have any righteousness of my own. I need you. I need you to save me. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is life-changing news. It is eternity-changing news. And this morning, in the time we have left, I want to look at three implications that the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ has on our lives. There are three major implications. And we're going to go back to that opening thing where we talked about Apple and how when Apple affects you personally, it affects you relationally. And then when it affects enough people relationally, it goes global. In much the same way, the gospel works just like that. You know how the gospel spread in Acts? Jesus comes back. He shows himself to the disciples. The disciples are changed. Their lives are altered by Jesus Christ. And they go and they go at the day of Pentecost and they begin to preach and they begin to tell others and others begin to tell others. And now here you and I sit in Cane Bay, South Carolina, Berkeley, South Carolina, thousands of miles removed from the nation of Israel 2,000 years later. And we are talking about the same Jesus. Because when something affects you personally, You're going to talk about it. And when enough people talk about it, it's going to go global. So let's look at the three implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you would, turn in your scriptures to Romans chapter 10. If you have a Bible, um, you can turn to Romans chapter 10. If not, that's cool. It should be up on the screen in just a minute. Um, 
three implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If, if you're not a believer here this morning, let me just, let me just say this. Like, if you're, if you're just here um, because somebody invited you, or if you're just here um, because uh, maybe you just wanted to come check this thing out, and you're not a believer in Jesus, let, let me just say this. I am so glad that you're here this morning. I am incredibly glad that, that you are here. I don't think it's an accident that you're here, um, even if you kind of feel like it is. Or I thought there was school this morning. I, I, you know, I, even if you kind of think it is, I know that it's not an accident that you're here, and I'm so glad that you're here this morning. Here's what I want you to do, okay? Um, this first implication is, is for all of us. So you included. Everybody in this room, the first implication is for. But then after that, the second two implications are just for believers in Christ. So if you're not a believer in Christ this morning, um, I don't want to put this burden on you because it's not a burden that you have to bear. So you can listen and understand that the first implication is for all of us, and then the second and third implication is just for those who have come to know Jesus Christ. And at the end, we're going to kind of talk about how that works out. So let's look at the first implication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, Romans chapter 10. We'll start in verse 8. Um, in the first seven verses of Romans chapter 10, Paul, who is the author, he's writing uh, to the church at Rome. Um, he's writing about those who are in vain trying to save themselves by keeping the law. Okay, remember we talked about that just a minute ago, that, there, that we can't save ourselves just by keeping all of God's commands. Um, but that hasn't, that hasn't sank in with everybody, and there are still lots and lots of people who are trying in vain to bridge the gap between them and God by their good works. And Paul writes to these people, and he's saying, it's not going to work. It, it, that, that's not the way that we get to God. And then in verse 8, he starts in by saying this. He says, what does it say? Meaning the scriptures. What do the scriptures say? And he quotes from a passage in Deuteronomy in verse 8. He says, the word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. I love this picture that Paul paints of salvation. Um, anybody ever seen a movie where a guy's like hanging onto a cliff and like it's, it's this real intense scene where he's got to get to like a rope or like a vine or like a crevice and he's like reaching out with everything that he's got. He just can't quite get there and everything's kind of working. That's the way that I think, kind of think that we see salvation sometimes. That we work and we work and we work and no matter how hard we strain, we just can't lay hold of it. We just can't grasp it. But Paul says that's not the way that salvation works. When he says in verse 8 that the word is near you, um, the Hebrew phrase there actually means that the word is within your grasp. It's within your grasp. He says that the word of salvation is within your grasp. It's not that we have to reach. It's just that we simply have to reach out and take it. It says that God has provided it for us, that we don't strain ourselves and have to work harder to get to it. All that we have to do, it's within our grasp. And then he tells us how we go after it. He says, if you confess and you believe. What does it mean to confess and believe? Because um, I think it works backwards. I think it works in that way where we believe and then we confess. Because what Paul's talking about for salvation is not just kind of an intellectual ascent wherein we go, yes, I believe Jesus was a real person. I'm not feeling anything. Like, that's not the kind of salvation that he's looking for. That's not the confession that he's looking for. What he's looking for is a deep-seated confession that comes from our heart, that when something stirs in our soul and changes us to the very core, we have no way 
to not call out and say, Jesus, you are Lord. And when we believe it in our heart and we confess it with our mouth, Paul says, that's how we come to salvation. He says, God has provided it for you. He's provided this salvation. It's within your grasp. All that you have to do is believe and confess. Because it's based on faith. Now, how do we believe? We believe through faith. What is faith? The best definition I've ever heard of faith was from a guy who's a pastor in Atlanta named Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley said this, and I love this. It's simple. It's complex. It's beautiful. He says, faith is simply this, believing that God is who he says that he is and will do what he says that he's going to do. Faith, believing that God is who he said that he is and that he will do what he said that he's going to do. And when we have that belief, when the Holy Spirit takes takes up residence in our heart, it's going to come out in confession. And we believe that God is who he says that he is, that Jesus is who he said that he is, and he will do what he said that he's going to do. We confess, Jesus, you are Lord. And it says, at that moment, our sin is forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ, and we are given his righteousness. And when God looks at us, he no longer sees our baggage that we drug in here this morning. He no longer sees the sin that we may have been caught in for years and years and years. What he sees when we believe and confess is his son, Jesus Christ, and he is pleased to save us. So I don't know how you came in here this morning, but this implication is for everybody. Maybe you came in here this morning and, and man, you're just you're just broken this morning. Maybe, maybe sin has just broken you. Maybe you come in here addicted. Maybe you come in here enslaved. Maybe you come in here just looking for a word that can keep you going on this week. This is it. This is the gospel. This is what saves us. Or maybe you fall into the other camp. Maybe you've been doing this church thing for a long time. And maybe you've been working the, the nursery and maybe you've been coming to church and maybe you've been learning the songs and maybe you've been doing these things all in an effort to appease God and you just feel like that you can't work hard enough, that you just can't do enough for God ever to be pleased with you. The gospel says you don't have to work. Salvation is near you. It is within your grasp. It is in your mouth. It's in your heart. If you will believe on Jesus Christ and confess him, you will be saved. So what's holding you back this morning? What's holding you back this morning from making that decision to say, you know what? I'm done playing the church game. I'm done playing um, and trusting in my own righteousness and own good works. Or I'm done trusting in drugs. I'm done trusting in pornography. I'm done trusting in these things. I want to trust in Jesus Christ. I don't believe that anybody in here is here by accident. I believe that the reason that you're here this morning, specifically if you are not a believer, is because God loves you. He's pursuing you. We, we serve a God who doesn't just go, oh, you don't want anything to do with me? Cool. I'm out. Good luck at Judgment Day. We serve a God who, is pursue, who pursues us even when all of our lives we spend going, I don't want you. He pursues us. He loves you. He has a plan for your life. Would you believe and confess today? When this personal gospel 
takes root in our heart, when it, when it comes out of our soul, when it comes out of our, um, from our very core that we believe that Jesus is who he said he was and he's going to do what he says that he's going to do and he's the most beautiful thing in the universe and he's the only way that we can come back into a right relationship with our creator God, what that then does is it gives us a relational implication. So we looked at the personal implication of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it takes up residence, that it's merely there, believe and confess, lay hold of the salvation that God offers to us today through Jesus Christ. And when that takes place, the next thing that happens is it becomes relational. Kind of like what we talked about at the very beginning, okay? Um, If you're excited about something, you're going to want to talk about it, okay? You you are. Um, My wife and I were in Columbia yesterday, and we went to the Carolina football game. And, And I kid you not. Carolina won, and it was great, and yeah, hoo-ha, but everybody on the way out of the stadium, what are they talking about? Football game. Because they're excited about it, because it's, because it's something that has personally impacted them, so they want to find everybody else, and they, they talk about it, and they cheer about it, and they do these really long, complex chants about it, and I don't know how it all works, but when we're excited about something, it comes out. In much the same way, the gospel of Jesus Christ, when it takes root in our heart, when we believe and we confess, we're going to tell other people about it. Because it is life-changing news, not just for us, but for everyone. Look at the next part of Romans chapter 10. What's it say? For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, In the 19th century, um, scarlet fever was a major disease. And, And I know you're like, scarlet fever? Where's he going with this? Trust me, we're getting somewhere. Uh, scarlet fever was a major disease. It affected um, a, a, lot, a lot of people. It was actually, in the 19th century, the number one killer of children um, in the world was scarlet fever. And then this amazing thing happened in the early 20th century. You know what happened? They discovered penicillin and other antibiotics. They began to discover ways that they could treat scarlet fever. And when they figured this out, you know what happened? The scarlet fever mortality rates plummeted because there was a cure for this disease. Now, notice what happens among the the scientists and the people that have discovered the cure for scarlet fever. What do they do? They write it in their journal and go, hey, great things happened today. Found a cure for scarlet fever. Put this on the shelf. Come back to that later when I need a proud day. No, there's not any of that happening. What what else don't they do? Do they just kind of sit around and go, you know what? I don't know. We've got this cure. But if I go out and say I've got the only cure for scarlet fever, it's going to probably make some people angry. Like, like, it might make some people upset, so the best thing that I should do is probably just sit on this cure, not really say anything about it, because I don't want anybody else to be offended. Or do they get into, like, this scientist room and just start debating the finer points of the cure? Hey, let's talk about this cure. You think this cure found you, or did you find the cure? Like, like are they talking about it? No. What are they doing? They go, we've got the cure. We've got it. You don't have to fear this disease anymore because we've found the cure. And let's do everything that we can to make sure as many people as possible know that we've found a cure for this disease. Ladies and gentlemen, sin is a sickness. Jesus is the cure. And you, if you are a believer in Christ, have found the cure. What are you doing about it? Because when something impacts you personally, it's going to impact you relationally. You're going to want to tell other people what you have found. Okay? I've had several conversations this week about iPhones and Apple. 
probably more of those than I've had conversations about Jesus. And if you were honest, most of you would say we fall into that same trap. We've got the cure, but we want to talk about anything else but the cure. If I'm in the hospital and I've contracted a fatal disease and my doctor comes in the room, I want him to tell me one thing. How can I get better? Okay? I don't care at that point about my doctor's fantasy football team or about what he pinned on Pinterest earlier or about how good his kid's ball team is. What do I care about? I care about, do you have the cure? Ladies and gentlemen, as believers, you see people every day who are dying in their sins and you have the cure and you want to talk to them about anything but. We have a responsibility. God says, the scriptures say we have a responsibility to share Jesus. This shouldn't be a burden. This should be our joy. You think it was a burden for those people to to cure people with scarlet fever and see them get better? Think it was like, oh, got to see this person get better. No, it was their joy. So how do we do that? It's pretty simple, really. Um, You just talk about Jesus. You just open your mouth and you talk about Jesus. Now, we could write a whole book about evangelism tactics and how we want to go about. And if they say this, what should you say? Just talk about Jesus, man. Tell him what he's done. Tell people what he's done in your life. What I'm not saying is that we don't build relationships to talk about Jesus. That would go against everything that we teach, okay? So before you go out and invest in a bullhorn and a sandwich board and stand down on King Street shouting, the end is near, let's talk about this thing, okay? That's not the route that we've got to go. We've just got to open our mouths and talk about Jesus. Um, There's this quote that's making its round in religious circles, um, and it's erroneously um, attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. He didn't actually say it, but the quote is, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. And that's pretty, and we can put it on a coffee cup, we can put it on a t-shirt, but that's the dumbest thing anyone has probably ever said. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. That's like me looking at that doctor who's got the cure and going, hey, tell me how to heal myself, and if necessary, use words. So we're just playing this hospital charades thing, and I'm trying to figure out, what do I have to do? Preaching the gospel, the, the, the very implication of preaching the gospel means that you use words. And listen, you don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to have a seminary degree. You don't have to be able to answer every question that somebody's going to throw back at you about Jesus. All that you got to do is say, listen, I was lost, but now I'm found. And Jesus Christ, here's what he's done in my life. And nobody can refute that. Nobody. Nobody can refute what Jesus Christ has done personally in your life and in your heart. So let's stop being a church that's afraid to talk about the cure. Let's proclaim Jesus in our workplaces, in our schools, in our homes, in all that we do so that people can see that Jesus Christ is more supremely valuable than our fantasy football teams, than our iPhones, than our families, than anything else. Because he is. So it has a personal impact. It has a relational impact. And finally, that's a global impact. You know, you see that? Personally, affects me personally. I'm going to tell other people about it. And then when enough people start to talk about it, it's going to be global. It, it, it's going to go global. And Paul recognizes that. And in Romans 10, 14, he says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him 
whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how will they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. According to our best analysis today, there are nearly 7 billion people on planet Earth. That's incredible. 7 billion people on planet Earth. The most generous of those surveys, so, so note, the most generous of those surveys, I think these numbers are much higher than they actually are, but we'll go with it. The most generous of those surveys estimates that there are just over 2 billion Christians. Okay? 7 billion people, just over 2 billion Christians. Meaning that nearly one-third of the population claim to have received salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, in, in one way, we look at that and go, hey, it's pretty good. One-third, that's all right. But if we flip the coin on that, we recognize that that means that more than two-thirds of the world today, this morning, have either rejected Christ or are indifferent to him or have never had the opportunity to hear the gospel. If we believe the gospel, this is sobering news. That you and I have found the cure and that nearly two-thirds of our world have either rejected the cure, don't care about the cure, or nobody's ever told them that there is a cure. These 7 billion people are represented by 11,000 plus people groups. Um, a people group is a group where the gospel can spread unhindered by a cultural language or relationship barrier. So these 7 billion people break into about 11,000 people groups. Of these 11,000 people groups, 6,600 of them, 6,600 of them remain unreached. What an unreached people group means is that less than 2% of the population of that people group believe in Jesus Christ. Those 6,600 people groups compose nearly 4 billion people. These are men, women, boys, and girls today at this moment, that are dying in their sin. Some of them don't even know they're sick. The gospel of Jesus Christ has a global implication. So let me ask you this, church, those who have been called and redeemed by Jesus Christ, if we don't go to them, who will? If we're not willing to take the gospel to the ends of the earth like we just sang, who's going to go? Who's going to go? I've had the privilege of serving um, and preaching internationally. Um, God has given me the great opportunity to go to places like England and Kenya and Ethiopia and Peru and Mexico to name a couple. And the one thing that I'm, that I'm struck by whenever I'm on the international mission field, is, is just how incredibly big the world is. Okay, Anybody ever been to a foreign country and just been like, man, I didn't even know any of this stuff was out here. You know, like, it, it, there's just this bigness that just kind of comes over you when you're international. I know that sounds trite, okay? I know that some of you are like, oh, the world is big. Yeah, okay, awesome. Thank you for that. Learn something new every day. But, but, but it is, but listen, I remember vividly I remember vividly standing on, on the plains in Kenya and just looking out for miles and miles and miles over the African plain and just seeing how enormous the sky was. 
And, and I remember standing in this small fishing village in Peru and looking out over the expanse of the Pacific Ocean. And I remember standing in a high rise, looking out over the city of London at dusk. And all three times I remember just feeling so small. And there's two things that God reminds me of in these moments. One, that he is the Lord of and created all of it. And not only that, but he's intimately familiar with every single person and every single land, country, city, and home. And he is greater than the sum of all creation. And he's, play, and he's given us a chance to play a part in restoring it. And second, of all those things, I can remember that the one truth that binds us together is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is infinitely worthy of all of the worship of all of his creation. And if four billion people this morning don't know that truth, who's going to tell them if not us? So, so that's why we go to Haiti. That's why we as a church send Charlie and Ben to Haiti because we want to know how can we be involved in taking the personal, relational gospel and seeing it go global. So when we talk about foreign missions in here, I don't want you to think that it's just something that we're doing because it's a church game. When we talk about foreign missions, we are talking about the worship of our God, the global global worthiness of our Savior and our King and how we can partner with other people to make sure that Jesus is seen as glorious in all parts of our world. So I think there's three ways we do this. Closing up. One, I think we pray. I think we pray faithfully for the lost and for the nations. We pray that God would send men and women to the mission field and we pray that God would give us ways that we can serve the lost and the nations. Second, I think we pay, okay? Some of you, God's not calling to the ends of the earth, but he's given you the resources to send others whom he has called. So when you give faithfully and sacrificially to world missions, what you are doing is helping in some way to send the gospel of Jesus Christ to where it is not. And finally, we go. All of us are called to go. Okay? Maybe you're just called to go across the street, or maybe you're just called to go to a guy at work, but maybe you're called to go to sub-Saharan Africa, or maybe you're called to go to the Middle East, or maybe you're called to go to the former Soviet Union. God is calling all of us to go. The Great Commission doesn't say, you go, and you go, and you go, and you don't. It says, go, therefore, into all nations. So the question this morning isn't, why should I go? The question is, why should I stay? What, what is it that God has called me here for in this neighborhood, in this community that he, that he wants me to do? And, and, and I'm not saying that everybody in this room should go, gosh, we got to go home and pack. Now we got to go to Africa. That's not what I'm saying. But maybe some of you might. Maybe some of you just need to go home and go, you know what? Our neighbor across the street that we talk to every morning, I, I don't know if he knows Jesus. Maybe I need to look for a way that I can be real intentional about sharing the gospel with him this week. We pray, we pay, we go. There's this gospel ripple effect. 
that, that you ever seen a ripple effect when you drop a stone into a calm pond, what happens? There's a splash and then there's ripples that come out from it. When the gospel makes a splash in our life, there's going to be relational ripples and global ripples. It's the ripple effect of the gospel. So this morning, the bottom line, if you don't walk out of here with anything else this morning that I've said, I want you to walk out of here with this truth, that the good news of Jesus Christ is the best possible news for me, my family and friends, and the whole world. That's all I want you to remember. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the best possible news for me, my family and friends, and the whole world. You bow your heads, close your eyes. As I, as I close this morning, I, I want to say this. If, if, if there's never been a time where you've personally confessed and believed that Jesus is the Lord of all creation, then all this stuff about telling your neighbors and going to the world, stuff doesn't matter. And we can join churches and we can serve in, in some capacity and, and we can be in a missional community, but, but if we've never come to know Jesus Christ personally, none of that's going to save us. Because it says that it's only through trusting in Jesus Christ to be our righteousness that our sin can be forgiven, that we can be seen as righteous and reconciled to God and that we can have life eternal. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. Everybody's heads bowed. Everybody's eyes are closed. Nobody's looking around. If that's you this morning, if, if, if like you would say this morning, I've, I've never made a personal profession in Jesus Christ and, and I feel like this morning's the morning and I didn't know when I walked in here that my eternity was going to change, but it might in the next couple minutes. If that's you, and you feel like that God has just put this in your heart and it's about to come out, that you just have to confess that Jesus is the Lord. That you're not going to turn back to that sin. That you're not going to go back to the way things used to be. That you want to see Jesus lifted up in all things. You want to be saved. You want to be like him. You want to know the truth of the gospel. That's you this morning. Nobody else looking around. All I want you to do is I want you to look up here at me. I just want you to look. If that's you, here's the great news. This morning, God of the universe, the God of the nations is pursuing you. He saw you, he created you, he knows you, he loves you, he has a plan for you. And it starts this morning with confessing that he is the Lord and believing that he rose from the dead. Salvation can be yours. So here's what I want you to do. If that's you, when we stand up to sing in just a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. If that was you, when we stand up to sing, there are volunteers in the back. They've got name tags on. They're real easy to see. I want you to find one of those volunteers and I just want you to say, hey, that's me. 
or, or if you just want some questions answered or, or if you just kind of want to talk through